0: Let me invite you to take your Bible this morning and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Somebody asked me yesterday if I was doing a Mother's Day message, and I said no. I said I'm in the middle of a series right now, and what I have to say is applicable to everybody, not just mothers, but also to fathers and brothers and sons and daughters and children, everyone. It's applicable. We have been looking at Ephesians for a few weeks now, as we have been in a series called The Vanishing of Sin. And as I've been talking about this, I've been showing you how sin in the culture has been redefined. In fact, it's not even being talked about. But it's certainly being acted out, is it not? And we're seeing it. We're seeing things in our culture that we've never seen. And uh, it's, it is somewhat devastating. And that's why you've got to keep your, your eyes on the Lord, right? Because if you have your eyes on the culture and what's going on, that's just going to really discourage you. But we're keeping our eyes on the Lord because it's the Lord that we serve, right? And as we have been going through this series, we have been seeing as believers that sin should be decreasing in our life. And the closer that we get to Jesus, the closer that we get to God, it will decrease. And so we looked pretty strongly at the passage in Ephesians 4, where it picked up in verse 25 and took us all the way down to verse 31. And as we were looking at this, uh, we were learning that we have to put off our former manner of life. Because he says that over in verse 22. You lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. And you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And you put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. And so as we do that, then there are several things that must change in our life as putting on the new man. For example, verse 25, we change from lying to speaking truth. Verse 26 and 27, we change from unrighteous anger to righteous anger. Verse 28, we change from stealing to sharing. Verses 29 and 30, we change from unwholesome words to edifying words. And we change in verse 31 and 32 from fleshly behavior to supernatural virtues. And as I said last time, the word imitate is a very important word in the Bible. We hear Paul saying to be imitators of me just as I am of Christ. And that's really the basis by which we would imitate anyone, right? But God is our goal here. He is our goal. And Jesus reminds us of this in Matthew 5.48 when he says, Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. So there's the goal. There's the striving. This is what we're after. Even though we may not attain this in this life, but we certainly strive after it. Because our goal is to be like God, right? And the three ways that he gives there of how we are to be like God are found in verse 32. Verse 32. And this is what we looked at last time. He says be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. So three things that we are to imitate God in. We imitate him in kindness, compassion and forgiveness. And when we talked about kindness, we pointed out that the nature of God is kindness. That's His nature. It says in Psalm 106, 7, He is abundant in kindness. But that wasn't all. Because He's all these things, then this is what we are to be. We are to be kind to one another. Not just those that we love. It's easy to be kind to those that we love. But we also have to be kind to those that are unlovable, unlovable those that are not kind to us, those that hate us. Romans 12 talks about that, giving them a cup of water in that time of need, and when you do that, you'll heap coals of fire on their head. It talks about leaving vengeance for the Lord that He will repay. Vengeance is not ours to take. And so it's very important that we are kind to one another. And then secondly, we are to imitate Him in compassion. Compassion is also part of God's nature. James 5.11 says that he is full of compassion. Even Psalm 25 and verse 6 says, Remember, O Lord, your compassion and your loving kindnesses, for they have been from old. And even when David was finally brought to the point of confessing his sin, in Psalm 51 of murdering Uriah, he was charged with that because he had... Uriah murdered, trying to cover up his sin of adultery with Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. And Nathan the prophet has to confront him. Remember that? And he confronts him with a word picture. And as David is getting all excited about this word picture and the content of what was going on, he turns around and says, you're the man. Well, David had a right response. Immediately he said, I've sinned. And it wasn't like the same response that Saul had when Samuel confronted him because all Saul cared about was the people and how he looked in front of all the people. He wanted to make sure that he was still elevated and honored and respected in front of all the people. And that's why he told Samuel, Samuel, please go back with me as I go before the people. And Samuel said, I will not go with you. Sammy wasn't playing this game that Saul had. But here's David's response, Psalm 51, verse one. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. David was truly broken over what he had done, and he suffered the consequences of what he had done. Ultimately, God took the baby that was born to them. We are to imitate God in his compassion as we deal with people, and we deal with people all the time. We work with people, we're around people, whether you're in the store or whether you're uh, at the job. Uh, You deal with people. And again, verse 32 says that we are to be tender-hearted. Not hard-hearted, tender-hearted. Have compassion. It's real easy to look at others and see their lack of compassion. It's very hard to look at us and to see the same thing. But we have to look there. So we imitate God in kindness. We imitate God in compassion or tender-heartedness. And third, we imitate God in forgiveness. Our God is a forgiving God. And if it wasn't for His forgiveness, none of us would be here. None of us. And the word that He uses there for forgiveness, it means to release. Because when you're unforgiving, you're holding that person to a debt that they owe you because they hurt you, they offended you. And you're waiting before you release them of that based upon how they respond further. Will they further compound this or will they really seek to try to make the situation right? Well, the Bible doesn't say to do that. In fact, we're told in Matthew 5 that if you know that your brother has something against you, leave your gift at the altar and go and be reconciled with your brother. Don't wait for them to come to you. You go to them. Before you offer your gifts. So in other words, you're sitting here in worship this morning and you remember that there is someone who has something against you in your mind. You're to go to them. I'd be shocked if we all got up and walked out right now. But we do need to deal with these matters the same way as God would deal with them. And as we start talking about verse 2, walking in love, the key to all of that is what he has said in verse 32. We have to be ready to pardon offenses. We have to overlook the personal wrongs against us. We have to harbor no desire for retaliation. And if you truly love, it will be manifested in your kindness and your compassion. So we are to imitate God. But not only are we just to imitate God, but we are also to imitate Christ. We are to mimic God and Christ. Notice there in verse 2, he says, And walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice for a fragrant aroma. So just as Christ has loved you, you are to love. You're to walk in that same kind of love. That's what we're to mimic. And how do we do that? Well, there are several ways I want to talk about how to do that. First, and this is building on the context of the book of Ephesians, is that we need to walk worthy. We imitate Christ by walking worthy. Now, the word walk... That word occurs seven times in Ephesians. And it began back in chapter 4. So back up to chapter 4. And I want you to notice in verse 1. It began by Paul pleading with the Ephesians to walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you have been called. That's what he says there in verse 1. And the idea of walking is the idea of conduct, conducting yourself, behavior. Now how are we to behave? We are to behave ourselves in a manner that is worthy of our calling. Now, interesting thing about the word worthy, the word worthy means balanced. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, think of the idea of scales. You got scales in your mind and you got something on each side. Well, if you have something that's too heavy, what's it going to do? It's going to go down and the other side's going to come up. You want the same weight on both sides. So one side is your walk. The other side is your calling. You want them to be balanced. And so he says there that we have to walk in a manner that is balanced with our calling because we have been called. And then he says, verse 2, how? With all humility. The first three chapters of Ephesians... It it deals with doctrine, and the last three chapters deals with practice. The practical ramifications of that doctrine. And the practical section begins right here in chapter 4 and verse 1. The Christian walk, or the Christian lifestyle, is the emphasis of the last three chapters. It is to be a worthy walk. And again, what does that involve? Well, it involves walking in humility, verse 2. It involves walking in unity, that begins at verse 4, all the way down to verse 16. It also is walking in newness, that's chapter 4, verse 17, all the way to the end of the chapter. And what we're looking at now is love, chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. It's Verse 18, be filled with the Spirit. And then the last part of Ephesians, chapter 6, verses 10 to 24, is spiritual warfare. And I love how the book of Ephesians ends because, again, it starts with three chapters of doctrine. Then the last three chapters are the practical aspects of that doctrine He has just given. But you've got to realize at the end of Ephesians, chapter 6, that we are in a warfare. Which basically is telling us that walking in a manner that is worthy of the calling by which we've been called is not going to be easy. You have to be strong in the Lord. You have to put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. You've got to realize that our wrestling is with, not with flesh and blood. It's not on a human level. It's not with human relationships. That our wrestling is with principalities and powers and spiritual hosts of wickedness. It's, it's with the demonic world. That's where our real struggle is. And the only way that we're going to deal with that is that we have to do what I said when we started this series, is be filled with the Spirit. He is key. And a lot of times when we talk about being filled with the Spirit, many people treat the Holy Spirit not as a person. They treat Him more as a force. But He's a person. So we have to make sure that we do this. And being an imitator of God ties all of this together. One commentator says, Since God humbled Himself in Christ, we are to be humble." Since the Trinity is three, yet one, be one with other believers. Since God is different, set apart from this evil world, be different. Since God is love, be love. Since God is light, be light. Since God is wise, be wise. Since God is spiritual, be directed by spiritual principles. And since God is the victor over Satan, we are to have victory over him as well. And so we have to do this, first of all, by walking worthy. Sinclair Ferguson said, We are raised in Christ, with Christ, by Christ, to be like Christ. So that's what we're after. And now in verse 2, he picks it up even further and talks about not just walking worthy, but also walking in sacrificial love. Again, look at verse 2. Walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. That is a sacrificial love. He gave himself up for us. What's Jesus say to the disciples in John fifteen thirteen? No greater love has any man than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. It's putting others before yourself. And in a culture in which we live in, nobody wants to put others before themselves. All the destruction that has been going on, all of the things that's been going on with changing our view of homosexuality and that whole lifestyle. You know, it's it's becoming more and more in TV shows to get you to accept it, to kind of water down your convictions, to make it where you're not appalled by it anymore. You know, it used to be on TV that... It was very, very rare to see something like that, but it, it's out there now, and it's being forced on us. And the idea is, is that if we tell the lie long enough, it becomes truth. But you know what? God still says it's an abomination. He didn't change it anywhere in Scripture. And if you really want to know what's going on in our culture right now, read Romans chapter one. And the Bible tells us that when God gives up on an individual or gives up on a nation, the way that you can see that occurring is through a sexual revolution. So when you get some time, read that in Romans chapter 1. And it begins by talking about the wrath of God. So all of this is occurring as a result of His wrath. The word that he uses here for love is the same word that we've seen many other times, agape love. This is the kind of love that we're to have toward one another, toward our neighbors. And when I say neighbors, I'm not necessarily talking about the person who lives next door to you, though you do need to love them too. But in the story of the Good Samaritan, the neighbor was anyone in a a need. Anyone in your path, anyone that you come across that has a need. Don't be like the Levite. Don't be like the priest that passes by. But be like that Samaritan who stopped and took care of this person who had been robbed and been beaten and was laying there on the side of the road. He had compassion. He had more compassion than the Jews had. And they had the law of God but he met this person's need. In fact, it's very interesting. It's almost like he handed the uh, innkeeper a credit card when he took him to a place, a hotel, to stay, and he had to continue on with some business, and he said, listen, take care of him, and whatever else he owes, I'll, I'll take it up with you when I get back. I mean, this guy didn't just take this guy somewhere and forget about him. He was concerned about him. He had compassion. He had a tender heart. There's a lot that we can pull from this. But you know, when we talk about the sense of debt, the only thing that you and I should ever owe anyone is to love them. I mean, that's Romans 13, 8. It says, "...Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this you should not commit adultery, you should not murder, you should not steal, you should not covet." And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. That's the relationships that we're to have. But I will tell you something, too. When you love somebody, you also have to sometimes tell them things that are uncomfortable. Sometimes you have to confront things in their life. But just remember, as you do this, remember what he said in verse 32 of chapter 4. Let that be the governing basis of your motive, the governing basis of your attitude, the words that you choose. I mean, even Proverbs 15.1 says, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word, all that does is stir up anger. So they may say something back to you that's going to make you angry. Don't respond the same way. Even if you're just silent for a couple minutes as you gather your thoughts or as you're praying, Lord, give me the words to say now. But just remember, a soft answer is what you're after. You want to be compassionate. Over in 2 John in verse 5, the Apostle John said, Now I ask you, lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one which you've had from the beginning, that we should love one another this is a scriptural wide truth we are to love one another but again we love them in truth we have to share the truth with them now you may be afraid to witness to people you may be afraid to talk to them because you're afraid of being rejected or you're afraid how they're going to respond or they're not going to be your friends anymore they're going to disown you but listen you're not loving them by being silent You're not loving them by never saying anything about the gospel. What you should be doing is loving them to the point to pleading with them to come to Christ. Because you know that the consequences of refusing Christ are detrimental. So if you really do love them, you need to share the truth with them. And really, when we look at this idea of love, as he says there in verse 2, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, he is our example. This is the model that we look at. The Lord is the supreme example in his self-sacrificing love for lost sinners. He took human sin upon himself... He gave up His very life that men might be redeemed from their sin to receive a new and holy nature and to inherit eternal life. That's what He did. And He did that on our behalf. He died in our place. We deserved the cross. We deserved the worst form of execution because we have sinned against God. But Jesus stepped in in His love and He took it for us. F.B. Meyer said, In love so measureless, so reckless of cost, for those who were naturally so unworthy of it, there was a spectacle which filled heaven with fragrance and God's heart with joy. And that's because of what Christ did. Romans 5.8 God demonstrated His own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know, we know people in our life, as I've said earlier, are unlovable. Maybe they hate you. They're not good people. But these are the people he died for. wasn't just people who were in awe over listening to him teach. It was also the people who rejected him. People who didn't have anything to do with him. The people who wanted Him to die. It's the same people in that crowd that yelled, Crucify Him. He loved them too. So we have to follow His example. 1 Peter 2, verses 21-24 to says, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps. Who committed no sin, Oh, understanding of suffering, suffering for your faith in Christ. And he's saying here, have the same response that Christ had. He didn't sin. There was no deceit found in his mouth. He didn't revile in return. He didn't utter threats. But he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. That's how we were to respond. Now as we pick up verses 3 and 4, it's as if he's taking us back to where we were already at in chapter 4. As if he moves back to his theme of verses 17 to 31. Because if you remember in verses 17 to 19, he tells them, Do not conduct yourself in the same manner that the Gentiles did. And how do they conduct themselves? Well, verse 17, in the futility of their mind. Verse 18, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. Verse 19, they became callous, having given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity and greed. Now, if you look at verses 3 and 4, it begins with that conjunction, but, that's a contrast And now he's telling them, this is what you don't want to follow. See, it's like he keeps moving back and forth. Because when you go back to chapter 4, again, he wants you to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. He wants you to put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, which has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. He does not want you to give back to the former manner of your life. He wants you to lay aside the old man. And he wants you to be like God. Be like God. I know that many times we think, be like God. That's How can I be like God? God is not sinful. I'm sinful. And immediately we look at ourselves and we think, how can I be anything that's good? It's because of Christ. You have the righteousness of Christ. You are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Just flip over one book to the right, which is Philippians. And over in chapter 3, in verse 9, notice what Paul says. This was his desire, that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. What? The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of what? Faith. You and I, on the basis of faith, have been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. You may see how sinful you are, but God has cast your sins in the sea of forgetfulness. He remembers them no more. Your sins have been paid for By the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, He bore in His own body our sins. I don't think we really understand that. I don't think we get that. But we need to meditate on that understanding. All of our sins have been paid for. Past, present, and future And that's why we can read like in Romans 8.1, there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We're not under judgment any longer. That judgment has been satisfied in Christ. He poured out, God poured out all of His wrath on Christ. And that's what we have to communicate. We should be communicating that to each other, and we should be communicating that to a lost world. So he tells us now in verse, verses 3 and 4 that we have to reject sin. So we imitate God, we imitate Christ, and we reject sin. We be like God, we be like Christ, we're like God in His kindness, in His tenderheartedness, in His forgiveness. We're like Christ in His sacrificial love. And therefore we have to reject, verse 3, immorality, impurity, greed. Don't let these even be named among you as proper among saints. Filthiness, silly talk, coarse jesting. These are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Now there are six vices listed here let's go through them the first one is immorality the authorized version translates it fornication fornication is when two individuals are not married and they have a sexual relationship that's fornication adultery is when two individuals are married and they go outside of their marriage to another partner And that is referred to as adultery. Sex is only for marriage. Only for marriage. Hebrews 13, verse 4 says, Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. What did I say a moment ago that's marked our culture? Sexual revolution. Right? Marriage is not honorable in our culture. In fact, they've been trying to redefine marriage for a long time, haven't they? And now that they have men with men getting married and women with women getting married, and I was in the store the other day, and I couldn't tell if this person was a man or a woman. I mean, I was really looking. And the only way I could kind of come to my conclusion that this was a woman was the, her hands. You, if you look, if you look at a woman's hands, they're much different than a man's hands. Look at the Adam's apple. Yeah. So, as I began to talk to her, she kept talking about her wife. So I was immediately picking all this up, and that's where we are in the culture, right? That's where we're at. But that doesn't mean it's right. So, it looks like we have to define, again, our terms. What does the Bible say about marriage? One man, one woman for life. That's what it talks about. What does the Bible say about genders? It only talks about male and female. I remember standing up here some time ago in one of my, one of my messages, and I think I read to you, what, 30 genders or something like that? There's only two, male and female. But if you begin to say that in the culture today, then people want to, to shut you down. They don't want the truth. But you have to give them the truth. Now this word here that he uses here for immorality, the, the Greek word is porneia. That's where you get the word Pornography. And it's referring to any elect, illicit sexual activity. This is referring to sex outside of marriage. In fact, Paul told the Thessalonians over in 1 Thessalonians chapter four and verses three and four. He says that the will of God is your sanctification; that you should abstain from sexual immorality; that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion. Like the Gentiles who do not know God. So he says you have to abstain from this. Abstain from this porneia, this sexual immorality. And what God's will is for you is your sanctification, being set apart to Him in holiness. In fact, in verse 7 it says, God did not call you in uncleanness, He called you in holiness. But again... The world is caught up in this perversion. And Romans 1 says that if you continue to get caught up in your perversion, God will give you over to that perversion. He told the Corinthians to flee immorality. He told the Colossians to consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality. So we're not to have anything to do with it. Notice what he says in verse 3. He says... Don't let this be named among you. Look at the second one. Or any impurity. This is translated uncleanness in the authorized. It's referring to anything that is unclean, anything that is filthy, In fact, Jesus used this word to describe the rottenness of decaying bodies in a tomb in Matthew 23, 27. The other ten times that the word is used in the New Testament, it is always associated with sexual sin. It's referring to your immoral thoughts, your passions. And again, I'm talking about immoral passions, immoral ideas, immoral fantasies, and every other form of sexual corruption. Paul said in Romans 6.19 that just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. You see, impurity does not produce sanctification. It produces more impurity. But when you submit yourself to righteousness... That's going to result in sanctification. He gives a third one in the same verse. He says, or greed. You may have covetousness in your translation, and the word here used is talking about a greedy desire to have more. It's always used in a bad sense, but it's translated covetousness or idolatry. Paul said in Colossians 3.5 that, again, this is one of the members that we have to put to death. He says, Therefore consider the members of the earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Even the Proverbs tell us, Proverbs 15.27, That he who is greedy for gain troubles his own house, but he who hates bribes will live. So there's nothing good here. You have sexual immorality, you have sexual impurity, you have greed. These are all sins that, as all sin is, that is self. It's self. And again, note the contrast. He has just been talking about imitating God and imitating Christ Because to do that would be selfless. But when you give yourself to immorality or impurity or greed or filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting, that's all about self. That's all gratifying self, gratifying your flesh. And no wonder, he says, don't let this be named among you as is proper for saints. What should characterize saints? Giving thanks, not these sins. Sins should not characterize us. William MacDonald says, it goes without saying that there should never have to be named as having been committed by believers. They should not even be discussed in any way that might lessen their sinful and shameful character. There's always the greatest danger in speaking lightly of them, making excuses for them, or even discussing them with familiarity and continually. Paul assents his exhortation with the phrase, as is fitting for saints. Believers have been separated from the corruption that is in the world. Now they should live in practical separation from dark passion, both in deed and in word. And not to speak of doing such a thing. Don't let it be named among you. Don't even let it be mentioned among you. Now he gives three remaining vices in verse 4. He says filthiness. That's referring to obscenity. Shameless, immoral conduct. This is all that is contrary to purity. It can also refer to any talk that is disgrading or disgraceful. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 7 1 that we have to cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and the spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So this this takes work. This is not like we just come to Christ and we don't ever fight our flesh. We don't do anything to To put off this old man and to walk in the new man? This takes work. This is a battle. And it's a battle you can win. It's a battle you can win now. Prior to Christ, you're doing it in your own strength, your own power. And you're really powerless over these things Christ breaks the chains to them I remember for myself when I was doing drugs there would be like one thing that I was real hard on and when I could let off of it I'd go heavy on something else I'd let off of that and I'd go heavy on another I could never get rid of it altogether but that moment when Christ saved me boom it was all broke the chains fell off That's true of anything in our life, even now as believers. And if you're not walking in the power of the Spirit of God, then you're just you're losing the battle because you're giving in to the flesh. And you need the Spirit of God's work in your life every single day to combat the sinfulness of this flesh. Again, Romans 8.13, it's by the Spirit that you put to death the deeds of the body. The only way we're going to deal with this that he has here is to walk in the Spirit. The only way that we're going to love in a sacrificial manner, not a self, selfish manner, is to walk in the Spirit because the fruit of the Spirit is love, right? The only way that we're going to be able to be kind or tenderhearted or forgiving is to walk in the power of the Spirit of God. Apart from that, you're on your own. James even calls for his readers to put aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. And he says, in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls, is able to deliver your soul. That's James 1.21. So immorality, impurity, greed, filthiness. The next one is silly talk, or you may have in the authorized foolish talk. This word, it comes from a compound word, moros, which means dull or stupid, and lego, to speak. Usually when you take a compound word like that, you speak the end of it first. So it would be to speak stupid. Stupid talk. This is all stupid talk. This is only befitting of someone who's intellectually deficient. Sometimes this is talking about low obscenity. It's the foolish talk from the drunk. It's the foolish talk from the gutter mouth. It has no point except to air dirty laundry. Words that didn't used to be heard on TV are heard now. It's as if there is no muzzle at all stuff we see on TV is coming out, and it's the culture. Where does Jesus say all this comes from? The heart. This is what comes from the heart. So if this is what's coming out of your mouth, this is telling me and everybody else you're not guarding your heart. Proverbs 4 says to guard your heart, for from it flow the issues of life. You've got to guard your heart. You've got to guard what you're putting in. You've got to guard what's coming out. By the way, this word only occurs right here in the New Testament. Well, notice the last word that he gives. Coarse jesting. You say, what in the world is that? Well, it's one word in the Greek. And it carries the idea of quickly turning something that is said or done no matter how innocent into that which is obscene or suggestive. You've been in a conversation with the guys or ladies together. I don't know how it is with the ladies, but all I know is the guys because <laughs> that's what I heard. And you may be telling an innocent story, and all of a sudden you've got somebody there that turns that story into something suggestive, something wicked. And everybody laughs. But see, now you're a believer. And you hear that and you don't want to laugh. In fact, I would be so bold to say, say something against it. Noting that you're not for that any longer. Turn it into an opportunity for the gospel. Turn it into an opportunity to share your testimony. Testimony. So instead of being involved in immorality or filthy speaking, the the believer's mouth should be involved in what he says at the end of verse 4. But rather, giving of thanks. Thanksgiving. We should be grateful people. Why should we be grateful people? Go back to verse 32. Because we have been forgiven. We have a lot to be thankful for. And we need to start practicing that, saying that. You know, it's easy to take anything and turn it into, uh, you know, pessimistic. You know, find the worst in it. (laughs) Giving thanks. 1 Thessalonians 5, 18. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus, that you give thanks. We are to give thanks. You know, it's interesting the word give thanks. It comes from the word Eucharist. What are we about to do? Share in the Lord's Supper. What are we doing when we do that? We're giving thanks. That's what we should be doing. We're giving thanks for what Christ has done because what this represents This represents the sacrifice He paid on the cross for our behalf. That should produce in us a thankful heart, a grateful heart, thankful and grateful that He did that for us. Right? And living every day by walking by the Spirit of God and not giving ourselves over to these vices is also an expression of giving thanks. Because we're grateful that He saved us out of this kind of stuff. Now, you may not have been any of this or maybe been some of this in your past. But I will say this, you were a sinner, period. And still a sinner. only difference between now and before is that we've been saved by grace. We've been redeemed. We've been forgiven all of our sins have been washed away and that should that should cause a hallelujah that should cause a, a, an expression of excitement when you think about it because you couldn't do this yourself you were chained to your past chained to your sin which was your present at the moment but god redeemed you through the gospel He gave you the new birth. He regenerated you. You're not the same person anymore. You're a new person. You're a new creature in Christ. Well, Paul doesn't stop right there because he gives a warning in verse 5. He says, For this you know with certainty. That no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Here's the warning right here. The warning is to those whose walk or lifestyle is that which he has mentioned in verses 3 and 4. And if verses 3 and 4 describes your life, you have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. In other words, you're not saved. And you need to be. And you need to repent. And when he says here, for this you know, that's to indicate that they have heard that they are to repent of these things and never have them named among them now that they are saved. Albert Barnes says it this way, Be assured of this, the object here is to deter from indulgence in those vices by the solemn assurance that no one who committed them could possibly be saved. William McDonald again says, There is no room for doubt as to God's attitude toward immoral persons. They have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. This verdict is in sharp contrast to the world's current attitude that sex offenders are sick and need psychiatric treatment. Men say immorality is a sickness, God calls it sin. Men condone it. God condemns it. Men say the answer is psychoanalysis. God says the answer is regeneration. And it brings us right back to where we started. The only vanishing of sin that should be in your life and my life is the decreasing of it. As we get closer and closer To God, closer to Christ, more dependent on the Spirit of God, sin should be coming less and less frequent. And that is possible, beloved. That is very much possible. And if you don't think so, read Romans chapter 6. We're now slaves of righteousness, we're not slaves of sin, those chains are gone. They're off. Don't live your life as if you still have those chains on. Don't live your life as if you still live that way. That's still your life. That's not your life. And if you are living that way, you haven't been saved. There has to be a difference. There has to be a change. And that change should be evident, visible, visible. People who call themselves Christians and still live an immoral, ungodly life, they're Christians only in word. Only because they identified themselves as that. And we know what that means. People identify themselves as all kinds of things that are not true. You know, people that identify themselves as binary and are neither male nor female. Are you even a human? They're not not dealing with biology here. They're dealing with stupidity. Because it's flat out stupid when you examine what they're saying. Now there are some similar words before we close I want to mention to you. And one's found in 1 Corinthians 6. So go with me to 1 Corinthians 6. Look at verse 9. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And what do we have today? Homosexual churches? That's an oxymoron when you consider a verse like that. Also notice verse 11, which tells us that none of these sins are genetic in the sense that you're born with it. The only birth you have with this is what you inherited from Adam, the sin nature. Verse 11, such were some of you, but you were washed But you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. And if you have not been washed or sanctified or justified, you're not saved. If these things characterize your life, verse 10, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Go with me to Galatians 5. Look at verse 19. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing. And things like these. In other words, not, it's not an all conclusive list. And then he says, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. If this is the practice of your life, you're not saved. So with me to 1 John chapter 3 Look at verse 4 Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness And sin is lawlessness Present tense participle, the word practices Present tense means it's ongoing It's continual For you know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him sins. And the word abide, present active participle, ongoing, active in your life. You're the one doing this. You're abiding in Him. And then he says, No one who sins has seen him or knows him. The word sins is also in the present tense. No one who continues to sin. Verse 7 Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. But the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin, because the seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. The word practice occurs two times in verse 4. It occurs one time in verse 7, one time in verse 8, one time in verse 9, and one time in verse 10. What do you think the point is? If you practice sin, that's talking about a habit of your life, and again, the present tense is indicating ongoing, continual, and you're not saved. So my beloved... You need to examine yourself this morning, and especially as we come to the Lord's table, because that is a good place to be examined as you think about the sacrificial, of de- sacrificial death of Christ on the cross and His resurrection. You need to look at your heart, look at your life. Now look at your intentions. I intend to do right. I intend to live right. Look at the reality. Are you living righteously? Is that the pattern of your life? I pray and hope it is. And as we go to the Lord in prayer at this time, again, pour out your heart before Him. Do a self-examination. 1 Corinthians 13.4 says to examine yourselves to see whether you be in the faith. Prove yourselves. Or even what James says, beloved, faith without works is what? Dead. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you at this time having heard what your spirit has said here in these verses. We pray that we will examine ourselves honestly this morning. Even if it means that we come to the conclusion that all this time where we thought we were saved, the reality is that we were not. We never were saved. And it would be better for us to find out this now instead of going in eternity without You. So, Father, I pray that Your Spirit will move in every heart in here as we examine ourselves in light of the table that we don't take of it in an unworthy manner. But, Lord, we come to the table With gratitude, we're we're grateful for what you have done for us. And our salvation is only possible in Christ. So Lord Jesus, I pray, draw every person in here to yourself.